Hey everyone, this is David Green. I'm the co-founder of Fearless Media and your host here on Left, Right, and Center. This is the show where we take on all the political issues, even the complicated ones that might be dividing your own family these days. A controversial public health policy started under the Trump administration to turn away asylum seekers at the southern border during the pandemic is getting another life. The Supreme Court granted a last-minute request from a group of Republican attorneys general from 19 states to continue enforcing Title 42, at least for now. Title 42 was set to end Wednesday after a federal district judge said last month that the rule is unlawful. The Republican attorneys general, however, argued in a separate case that the Centers for Disease Control did not follow the proper procedures to end this policy last April. And yes, you heard me correctly. I said the CDC. That is because Title 42 is a portion of the U.S. Public Health Code that was invoked by the Trump administration in March of 2020 to turn away asylum seekers in the name of protecting public health. Once in office, the Biden administration kept using this policy with some changes to expel migrants from the country without giving them a chance to ask for asylum, though Biden has been trying to end this policy for most of this year. Almost three years later, with Title 42 locked up in court fights for months, United States Customs and Border Protection estimates that this policy has allowed immigration officials to expel more than 2.4 million migrants, many of whom would have had the chance to apply for asylum under normal circumstances. Now the Biden administration is furiously trying to finalize its plans for when this policy is likely struck down as tens of thousands of migrants have arrived near the southern border. So let's talk about this with our left, right, and center panel. We have Moa Lathy back, executive director at Georgetown University's Institute of Politics and Public Service. He was communications director for the Democratic National Committee and also advised Hillary Clinton. And we have Sarah Isger on the right, staff writer at The Dispatch. She is a lawyer and was spokesperson at the Department of Justice under President Trump. Hello, Mo. Hello, Sarah. Welcome back. Hello. Good to be back. I mean, this... It is no surprise that this policy has been controversial and political. I mean, just finding this balance to treat migrants humanely, to protect their rights to claim asylum, but also recognizing we have a limited number of resources here in the U.S. Uh, I mean, Mo, what should President Biden be thinking at this moment with a lot of people waiting at the border and this policy kind of hanging in the balance? Um, look, you know, this was something he said in the campaign he wanted to end. Um, I think there are a couple of key things to remember. One, as you rightly noted earlier, Title 42 is not an immigration policy. It's a public health policy. A lot of the people who are arguing uh, that it should be kept in place are the very same people who are arguing that the public health emergency is over and therefore should, we should be relaxing a lot of other pandemic-era policies. So you're right to note that it's become very, very political. Uh, number two, ending it doesn't just throw open the borders, right? I mean, to listen to a lot of people on the right, they make it sound like Title 42 is in place to stop a lot of illegal border crossings. It doesn't. Title 42 just stops the lawful entry of people seeking asylum. So what's been happening is that a lot of people who are have lost their access to legal entry to the United States to seek political asylum and enter the process are now entering illegally, which is causing this huge problem at the border 
and why we're seeing so many people, an influx of people trying to cross over illegally. On the flip side, you hear governors and mayors across the country saying, we're not ready for this influx of legal migrants. So the president's caught in a bit of a tough spot. If we're going to end it, it's got to be done in a way that provides support to those communities that are expecting an influx of migrants seeking asylum. Uh, And that's what concerns me about some of the proposals that Republicans have put forward this week who are saying just end Title 42, and if you don't, we're going to cut off funding to the Department of Homeland Security. That was Mike Lee's uh, proposal. So I I think a delay, you see some Democrats out there saying, let's delay the end until we make sure the resources are in place. But just but not ending it isn't going to keep our borders more secure. If anything, there's an argument to be made that Title 42 has made our borders less secure. I mean, Sarah, Mo's making it sound like there might be some sort of policy compromise here if, if everyone gets their wits about them and, and figures out a way to get communities ready to bring in people who are seeking asylum. Is, is, it, is that compromise something that is, that is reachable or do you see it a different way here? Well, let's not hold our breath on anything that might be uh, sure, explained I'm not as common my sense. Yeah. I mean, I'm, yeah, we're, we're just three smart people talking about things that could be reality. Let me push back on a few things Mo said first. One, uh, agree that it's very ironic that the people who want to keep Title 42 in place at the border are the ones who believe the pandemic is over. On the flip side of that, let's talk about what the Solicitor General and the Biden administration has been arguing. The exact same office went to the Supreme Court and said, um, you know, absolutely, the CDC has made clear that there is no public health reason to keep this in place any longer. They have also argued that the public health crisis very much continues when it comes to student loan forgiveness to the contractor vaccine mandate. So my point is the administration has tied themselves in knots over where there's a pandemic and where there's not. And notably, it uh, there's a pandemic when it allows them to expand their power. And there's not a pandemic when it's politically convenient to not have a pandemic. Um, number two, Mo is absolutely right that the effect of Title 42 at the border has pushed people away from the ports of entry and to cross illegally. However, and he didn't, uh, this wasn't incorrect, he just didn't mention the fact that Title 42 doesn't just allow border agents to basically shut down the ports of entry. It also means when they encounter people who have crossed the border illegally, they are able to expel them immediately rather than sort of the magic word test where if someone says they're seeking asylum, all of a sudden now they're in a totally different system um, in which they, most of the time, I, you know, this whole thing gets very complicated, but most of the time you basically get a notice to appear at a specific time and place for a hearing down the road. Um, you know, you have your credible fear exam and then you have a hearing When you get to the end of that asylum process, the vast, vast, vast majority of people do not qualify for asylum. Uh, And I think that all of that is relevant um, to everything that we're talking about here. But they have the legal right to claim it. I mean, they have a a legal right to to have a hearing and and claim it and, and, and make the asylum claim. Yes, but my point is that system is so broken. It's been so abused because these people are largely being, you know, paying smugglers to bring them across the border. So they know that what you do is you say, 
I am claiming asylum, then you get to stay in the country um, without Title 42, of course. And this asylum process can take a very long time, even if you have no non-frivolous argument for asylum. So yes, everyone, that's the, that is some of the problem here. Everyone has the right to raise their hand and say, I claim asylum. I have a credible fear of going back to my home country. Yep. Then you automatically get basically two years in the United States. And that's if after you're, you know, you show up for your hearing. And then if you're found not to qualify for asylum, that you leave the country, which that's sort of gets to the problem, right? But it's not their fault that the system is broken. I mean, they're coming from horrific conditions in these countries. I mean, it's not... It, it, I, I agree. The system needs to be needs to be fixed. But our legal system is that if you have a fear of persecution, there's very specific legal terms in which you uh, qualify for asylum. If you come to the country and lie about qualifying for those, and then you get this process, I mean that I understand uh, why so many of these people are are coming, and that yes, they are coming from bleak conditions. But they don't meet the legal definition, the vast, vast, vast majority. I do think that's a problem. And it's why you're seeing, I mean, just record upon record numbers of people coming to the border and saying that they have a credible fear of returning to their home country, even when under our legal standard, they don't. Can I, can I drill down on, on one other thing you said? I mean, pointing out that, that the Biden administration has, is sort of making different arguments for when the pandemic is over or not, you know, and with different policies. I mean, the ACLU filed a lawsuit saying that this policy, like a public health code, should never have been used to stop immigration in in the first place. Like that tie shouldn't exist, which, I mean, I, I hear that argument. My first reaction when Title 42 went in was like, this is terrible. I mean, you're basically, you know, the Trump administration is painting a picture of migrants as bringing the ones bringing disease to our to our country, which which sounded awful and and discriminatory to me. But I mean, what what it, it, is there a legal case to be made that that this was a sound way to stop immigration using public health code? Well, I mean, obviously, we have a legal statute under Title Forty Two, which says that. Uh, we can shut down products or people coming across our border if there is a fear of disease basically coming from their home country. So, of course, we use that to prevent crop destruction here and all sorts of things. And I hear what you're saying, but at the same time, the Biden administration was also fighting to have all private employers force their employees to get a vaccine, and they weren't checking people at the border of whether they had COVID. I mean, those you see why those are so much intention, right? Either there's a pandemic that we need to do everything we can to protect our citizens, or we have a very permissive immigration structure in which we don't care whether people have COVID or crossing the border. Well, I mean, look, and here's where I'll push back on Sarah a little bit. A lot of what the Biden administration was doing when it came to vaccine mandates was based on the guidance of public health officials. Title 42 was not something that was pushed by, in this case, was not something that was pushed by public health officials. It was pushed by Stephen Miller and the White House as a means to help curb immigration. I mean, that's been pretty documented. I think it is important to recognize that, and we've referenced this a few times already, that this has become incredibly politicized and it has moved out of the public health conversation into the immigration conversation. That's where it's always been. This particular application of Title 42 has been really an argument about 
who we should allow into the country and who we should not, as opposed to a conversation about the best way to protect public health. We have lots of conversations about immigration. Title 42 is taking our eye off of the bigger ball, which is, can we ever get actual comprehensive immigration reform enacted? Can we close loopholes? Can we strengthen the border? Can we find a better process than the one Sarah was was pointing out flaws in earlier? We're not having any of those conversations. Well, Mo, what, why isn't President Biden leading the conversation? Like, I mean, he, he's, he's gotten a lot of heat for not going to the border. If there's a bigger ball, as you say, that we should be keeping the focus on, isn't it on the president and the White House to be bringing a lot of all of these really hard policy questions and hard politics together in one message about what he wants and thinks should happen? I'm not because hearing David, that Because, David, I mean, this is, Mo is exactly right, um, but the, the side of this that nobody wants to talk about is that the Biden administration privately— they would love for the courts to keep Title 42 in place, politically speaking. Um, and what will replace Title 42, at least, again, this has not been formalized yet, but the court that struck down Title 42, the Biden administration are the ones that asked it to be extended another month for them to have an orderly wind down. And uh, the what we were hearing reported about what would go into its place is actually something incredibly in its result similar. So instead of you get to the border and you are expelled under this public health code, um, instead it would be that if you traveled and touched any other country where you could have claimed asylum, you don't. Then, then you don't get the aside the claim in the United That's States. That's right. Yeah. So let's say I you mean, travel from Central America and you've traveled through Mexico, basically like by you could have claimed asylum in Mexico. That's it's all very politically fraught for the Biden administration because they're they're fighting two sides of their party on this issue. And at the same time, these numbers keep increasing. The number of deaths of people crossing keep increasing. And the people who are winning are the cartels and the smugglers who are making billions of dollars on our southern border. Mo, is Sarah right? I mean, is, is Biden dealing with with a real disagreement within the party and, and trying to navigate that? And that might be why we're not seeing him come out with a like a clear message? Well, I think both parties have had issues over the years trying to find uh, the correct way to talk about immigration. Um, I mean, Republicans seem like less of a problem at the moment. <laughs> well, right now, I think that's true, right? But for much of uh, the previous iteration of the Republican Party, uh, you would still see some of these rifts. I mean, remember George W. Bush was a huge George advocate. W. Bush and Kennedy were close to maybe a, an immigration deal that would have prevented us from being where we are right now. That's right. That's right. Um, and look, and and there are a significant number of Democratic senators who do not support immediate and to, uh, lifting of, of Title 42. Um, so a lot of them are moderates. A lot of them are from battleground states and swing states, and they see some political peril in, uh, in this as well. Though most of them, I think, would argue that it should be lifted, maybe just not immediately. And, and again, you did see some Democratic senators this week put in uh, a proposal to delay the lifting of Title 42 until we provide more resources and at the same time offering more funding for border security um, as an alternative to some of the things Republicans were saying. Uh, so I, I think there is complicated politics in both parties on the issue of immigration. 
But I do think one of the first things the president tasked the vice president with, and this does not get nearly enough uh, attention, was the same thing that President Obama tasked him with when he was vice president, which was (laughs) trying to tackle the root cause, right? Trying to stop the influx of migrants into the United States, not just waiting until they get to the border to deal with it. And that's not a conversation that our government is spending enough time or resources uh, addressing under the leadership of either party. Um, we've got to do more on that. We're, we're never going to make these economies as good as the United States economy. So I do think that's it's a good idea, but it's never going to uh, be the the solution. Also, it's a bit of a game of whack-a-mole. I mean, we had Mexico as our key source of immigration over the southern border. Then it was the Northern Triangle countries. Now it's Venezuela and other countries. I mean, you go in and fix these countries' economies and it just moves somewhere else. Are we going to prop up every economy in the world? No, of course we can't do that. We have to solve it a different way as well. We'll have to leave it there with that challenge before us. Um, uh, we're going to come back to talk about President Biden's meeting uh, with Ukraine's President Zelensky and uh, the future of the war in Ukraine and that speech by the Ukrainian president uh, before a joint session of Congress. You're listening to Left, Right and Center. You're hearing civilized yet provocative opinions from across the political spectrum. Now we need to know what you think. Tweet us at LRC KCRW. We're back again with Left, Right, and Center. I'm David Green, the co-founder of Fearless Media. We have Moa Lathy, executive director at Georgetown University's Institute of Politics and Public Service with us on the left. We have Sarah Isger on the right, a lawyer, staff writer at The Dispatch, and former spokesperson at the Department of Justice under President Trump. And we also have a special guest today coming back, executive director at the McCain Institute, former deputy assistant secretary of defense for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia, Evelyn Farkas. Um, Evelyn, thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for having me, David. So for the first time since uh, the war began in Ukraine 300 days ago, well, at least the full invasion, Russia's been obviously invading parts of Ukraine for a while now. President Volodymyr Zelensky left Ukraine and came to the United States, arrived to meet with President Biden uh, and gave what was really quite a speech to a joint session of Congress. Uh, I mean, I was getting emotional. Um, It felt really weighty, and uh, he really seemed to rise to the moment. Um, He said a lot of things, talking about victory, talking about genocide, referring to the Russians as terrorists. He compared Vladimir Putin and his army to the Nazis. Uh, Lawmakers gave him many standing ovations. And uh, I just want to play tape of one poignant moment uh, when President Zelensky said this. This battle cannot be frozen or postponed. It cannot be ignored, hoping that the ocean or something else will provide a protection from the United States to China, from Europe to Latin America, and from Africa to Australia. The world is too interconnected and interdependent to allow someone to stay aside and at the same time to feel safe when such a battle continues. Evelyn, let me just start with your reactions. How did you take in this speech, and, and what, did it, what did it feel like as someone who has followed this part of the world for, for some time? So President Zelensky was doing what he does best, you know, really 
being authentic, channeling his emotions and his energies, using language to connect directly, as he said, you know, with every American, he wasn't really speaking just to the members of Congress. And he wanted us to think of the women, think of the children, you know, think of the society struggling. But at the same time, he was also Churchwellian, you know, he was also calling on enduring values and enduring interests like our interest in democracy and in the international order and the fact that Ukraine was fighting for us. And, you know, as Churchill had said during World War II, you don't need to fight for us. Of course, later we did. (laughs) Just give us the tools. And he was sort of using that same argument with us. We're doing this fighting for you. It's not just for our own people. So I think, you know, his rhetoric was soaring. His emotion came through. Um, He has a way of being uh, commanding yet modest all of those things, I think, um, had, a, had a great impact, certainly on uh, those of us watching on television. And I can only imagine how people in the room felt. I mean, I, I, I saw the historian Doris Kearns Goodwin on, on CNN. I mean, looking back to the days when Churchill came to the United States to, to try and win over the American public. I mean, that obviously the stakes in World War II, I mean, enormously high. Can, can you argue that the stakes are, are close to that? Yes. Here in this moment yes. that we're living through? Yes. And in fact, I was just reading in The Economist, apparently um, Zelensky has two books on his desk, and one of them is about Hitler and Stalin in World War II. And and he, and he of course, evoked Nazism in World War II with those words. Now, now, Putin has misused the terminology, calling the Jewish President Zelensky a Nazi. <laughs> But what, what Zelensky is trying to do is remind us it is as important because after World War II, we set up the international order that we have today in order to prevent another World War III. We set up a system that said every state must respect sovereign boundaries of other states. It said that we must all respect the human rights of individuals, even during wartime. So even when you have POWs, you must protect them. You must protect civilians, the Geneva Conventions. All of these things were put in place after World War II. And this is exactly what Putin is now threatening. And if if he has his way in Ukraine, he will turn and, and, and he will absorb politically and probably militarily Georgia and Moldova. And by the way, Georgia is already largely right now um, in, the, in the crosshairs economically. So they're in the, in the sights of Putin and in a fragile position. Um, then Putin will challenge NATO. He does not like this international order. He wants a sphere of influence system like we had before World War II, where large countries dictated to small countries what kind of system of government they could have and, frankly, you know, who they could associate with. So President Zelensky was saying that President Putin is trying to pull us all backwards to a world that was far less safe for all of us, Americans included. I mean... For you and I who follow this stuff so closely, I mean, the the speech felt enormously important. But I mean, you know, President Biden, other world leaders have been making the case that this is not just about Ukraine. This is not just about Russia. This is, I mean, an enormous battle for the world. Um, And I don't know how much that argument has has sunk in or been accepted by, you know, a lot of American voters. Do, Do you really think that one speech like this that you know, sure, was covered covered by cable news. It was there. But I don't know how many how many people were, were watching, listening. Do you really think that moved the needle in some way in terms of Americans feeling like this is a war that matters to them? 
I don't know. I mean, I think Americans, obviously, their heartstrings can be pulled by the stories that President Zelensky and, and his wife, the First Lady, when she came earlier this year, told about the suffering. But I, I do, I would agree with you that just as during World War II, before we entered, Americans didn't really understand what was at stake. Similarly, they don't really understand. But I think that that brings us back to leadership and the members of Congress. And certainly, President Zelensky was asking more of them to understand. We do have members of Congress who want to downplay the, the Russia threat, but they're all, almost all of them are happy to point to China as a threat. Well, anyone who's followed what China has been doing and saying uh, understands that China is looking very closely at whether the Kremlin will get away with this territorial aggression or not, because China has its designs on Taiwan, would like to essentially retake Taiwan to control Taiwan territorially. Uh, politically, certainly, but they have they have determined that they may not be able to coax Taiwan back under their influence, so they may have to use military action. So there are more members of Congress who could be convinced to see the link. And certainly when President Zelensky refers to China and other parts of the world, he's also trying to get more members of Congress who may not care as much about Russia or may not want to show they care about Russia to care because of the implications for Asia Pacific. Let me ask you um, what Zelensky left the United States with. I mean, Biden announced an additional $1.8 billion security assistance on top of $20 billion the U.S. has already provided. And, and also, Biden announced committing, you know, the Patriot Missile System, the most advanced air defense weapon in the United States arsenal. But there are more advanced weapons that, that the Ukrainians have, have asked for. Um, is is having the Patriot, which, as I understand it, is going to take a lot of training and, and won't be in use for months, and we're seeing Russia attack infrastructure and put a lot of Ukrainians, I mean, into a cold, dark winter without without heat, without power. I mean, is, is the Patriot system, is that a big deal in terms of Ukraine's chances here? I, I think it's a huge deal in terms of maintaining the will of the Ukrainian people, of, in terms of preventing a large-scale refugee crisis in Europe of refugees, more refugees flowing from Ukraine, because Vladimir Putin would be happy to flatten Ukraine with his missiles and have all the Ukrainian people leave because they have no access to food, water, and heating. So this, it will be very important for us to prevent that from happening. And of course, it's the humanitarian thing to do. Many of us Russia, you know, followers have been calling for months, if not a year or more, for the United States to provide these kinds of systems to Ukraine. It is, it is absolutely the humanitarian thing to do. Of course, unfortunately, because we didn't send it to them earlier, it will take some time to actually make make an impact. It's not going to win the war for Ukraine alone. As you said, there were there there is a need for other weapons. But but air defense is key. From the very beginning, they the Ukrainians, President Zelensky has been calling for us to help them quote close the airspace. Sarah, can you give me kind of a your current take on on the Republican Party when it when it comes to to this moment and, and the future of aid to Ukraine? I mean, we saw a good number of Republican senators coming out and and very much being in support of of more aid. Some House members too, but there there's a wing of the Republican Party, particularly in the House, um, you know, resisting, saying they want to audit the money that's been going. You know, some members even saying stop it now. Kevin McCarthy said no blank check, although no one's asking for a blank check, and he seems open to to some more. But what what is your take? Are there Republicans who are in this new House really going to try and hold things up, or 
Or is that just more, you know, people searching for for disagreement in Congress and headlines? It's just incredible when you think about where we were 20 years ago uh, in terms of what the foreign policy positions of the Republican Party were in the wake of 9-11 and now. And so I think you can break it up roughly into three groups, although uh, one of the groups is shrinking. So one, you do have the old school foreign policy Republicans of that post 9-11 and frankly, pre 9-11 Cold War era uh, that absolutely support Ukraine, see Russia as an enemy, uh, adversary. There's a second group that was a strain of isolationism that grew within the Republican Party at the same time that, you know, the populism grew sort of this idea why are we spending money abroad when we have problems at home? That money should be here um, before we're sending it to Ukraine. I think there's plenty of reasons to criticize that position, but it is a substantive position, at least. That's the group that's shrinking because what's overtaking it is Ukraine becoming part of the culture war on the right. That culture war includes um, CRT, it includes vaccine mandates, and it includes Ukraine. And that's not substantive. You see misinformation about Zelensky's wife taking a $10,000 shopping spree in Paris. There's just no, there's nothing to that. None of which would have gotten much attention before the era of social media. I mean, we should say. Oh, of course. Um, And so that's the strain of the Republican parties uh, that is not substantive. It's all part of this culture war aspect of it. And look, I mean, you know, Mo and I can spend however long any of you have to talk about why... Congress is broken and how it is then fracturing and shrapneling all of the other branches. But this is one of those symptoms of Congress breaking is that the culture war aspect of foreign policy within the Republican Party is outperforming the substantive disagreements. Mo, one of the interesting things that sort of came out of the Zelensky visit was this question. I don't know. Biden seemed to be hinting at maybe some sort of just peace, um, which a lot of people took as like maybe some sort of peace agreement with Russia. Zelensky has so far been very firm in saying, you know, he's not going to give up any territory. He's been very clear about what his ambitions are. I mean, does does Biden have the the fortitude to stick with Ukraine through this? Or is there going to be a time when we might see a gap between Zelensky and Biden and Biden trying to push for some sort of deal with Putin? I mean, if there is, we haven't seen it yet. I mean, with the exception of the amount of aid, right? I mean, Zelensky has not been bashful in asking for more. Uh, and he and the president actually had a had a, a moment uh, acknowledging that in their joint press conference yesterday. Yeah. But beyond that, uh, it seems that not only has the United States under this administration signaled its steadfast support for Ukraine, but it uh, has marshaled the rest of uh, our allies to do the same. Some are doing far more than others. But again, this goes back to what we've discussed before and what was being discussed earlier, this is Putin's nightmare, seeing a unified West. He has spent uh, so much time and capital trying to divide the West. And uh, this attack has, has unified it in a way that it hasn't been in quite some time. So I don't see uh, this president diverging from that strategy. If anything, he's giving them more of what they want. And as long as the Ukrainians continue and Zelensky continue to signify what they 
did what what they have been and what he reiterated in the speech that surrender is not an option that uh uh the Ukrainians are going to keep fighting I think the United States will continue to be there. One, because it's the right thing to do for Ukraine. Two, it's the right thing to do vis-a-vis Russia. Uh, Three, it's the right thing to do vis-a-vis this global battle against authoritarianism and and all of the geopolitical forces that come with that. Evelyn, let let me finish with you. You You were quoted in the New York Times saying that you think it is far easier for Ukraine to defend territory than to go on the offensive to recapture territory. I mean, does Zelensky have to face that reality and at some point give up on, say, getting Crimea back. Um, I don't know what that means in, in Donbass and eastern Ukraine, but is <laughs> is are his territorial ambitions rhetorically not matching the reality that he might know deep inside? No, because the second part of my quote, the second sentence, was that the Ukrainians need additional equipment and training in order to take the offensive, and we should give it to them. Ah, so, so it's hard for, hard for them to recapture territory, but it can be done <laughs> if the U.S. steps up, is, is what you're exactly. saying. Exactly. So, David, now we're finally doing a better job helping them defend themselves, certainly from the missiles that are attacking their civilian infrastructure, because Putin is fighting this war on multiple fronts. You know, one is, of course, the war in the east and the south in the trenches, you know, military on military. Then there's the war against the Ukrainian people in, in order to you know, essentially kill their will. That's not working. And then there's the war against the West, you know, to, to all this rhetoric that he comes out with, you know, nuclear saber rattling, and I'm going to escalate to try to get us to back down from supporting Ukraine. So in this new phase, it's imperative that we continue to help Ukraine on all fronts. We are now going to hopefully do a better job protecting their civilians with the Patriot missile system, but we also need to help Help them take the offensive. And here's where the Biden administration has still decided to hold back. There are missiles with greater range that can help the Ukrainians strike Russian military targets in Russia proper um, that we've been holding back providing to the Ukrainian military. We are now going to be providing them, however, with some things they will need. Um, tanks, I understand, you know, armored vehicles, um, uh, additional ammunition, and then hopefully I think we'll continue to provide them with real-time intelligence, training, you know, and assistance so they know where to strike and when to strike. Evelyn Farkas is former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense, and she's Executive Director at the McCain Institute. Uh, thank you so much, as always. Oh, thank you so much. It was my pleasure. All right, Sarah Mo, we're going to come back and talk about uh, Elon Musk's latest Twitter antics and what it means for our debate over free speech. You're listening to Left, Right, and Center. Thanks for listening to Left, Right, and Center. Is there someone in your life who could benefit from hearing a civilized discussion from all sides? Share the show with them. You can stream all episodes at kcrw.com slash LRC, straight from the KCRW app or wherever you listen to podcasts. We are back again with more Left, Right, and Center. I am your host, David Green. We have Sarah Isker on the right, staff writer at The Dispatch, and Moa Lathy on the left. He's executive director at Georgetown University's Institute of Politics and Public Service. Well, in less than two months, Twitter's new owner, Elon Musk, is once again in the news for the wrong reasons. This time, he's raised concerns about free speech and freedom of the press by suspending over a half dozen journalists' accounts, accusing them of 
violating Twitter rules, though it wasn't clear which policies these journalists violated, and Musk has yet to clarify that. Despite his persistent claim that he is a First Amendment absolutist so committed to free speech that he bought the company, Musk's swift and harsh banning of these six journalists reporting on his companies has led many to see Musk as flexing his power more than any sign of acting as a responsible moderator. Let me just ask you both, is free speech the right term that we should be debating here when it comes to Elon Musk, what he says he's fighting for, Twitter, what they should be protecting or not? Like, is is that the right term to the headline in this debate? There's lots of legitimate debates and conversations we can have around issues of speech. And that goes back to the beginning of the Republic, so much so that the framers put it in as the very First Amendment to the Constitution. But I don't know what Elon Musk is actually for or doing. Himself, probably. I mean, that we know. I think he is sees this as a fun sandbox to play in and is realizing very quickly, I don't know if he cares, but I think he's realizing that this the sandbox may not be as much fun as he once thought. He is doing a lot of things that are putting out a political agenda. And that's fine. Everyone on Twitter has the right to put forward their political agenda. But for all of his talk about free speech, it's becoming increasingly clear that he is weighting it to one side, that he is uh, pulling down a lot of guardrails that the previous leadership had put up and we can debate whether or not those guardrails are good. But to say that it's done in the name of free speech, while at the same time banning uh, journalists for not doing what he says they did, by making certain kinds of speech available only to paid subscribers, most of whom are uh, leaning uh, in one political direction versus another, I, I just don't think this is as pure as he pretends it to be. I think this is Elon Musk using this as his personal toy, and it's having an impact on uh, a very real series of dialogues because of who a majority of Twitter users are when it comes to the political Yeah, and that's space. the dialogue that I want to, I, I mean, I, I don't, I do not want to give him more attention. I frankly don't even care that much about his motivations, like personally. But I, I've just like this whole conversation about free speech. It's like you can see it in so many different ways. It's like, yes, free speech is one of the most important protections in our country. And you could even argue that, yes, part of that is you own a private corporation and you can decide what the messages should or shouldn't be in a private company and that that, that you're not, that's, it's not your responsibility to protect quote unquote free speech until, of course, your platform gets so big that it is basically a space for the larger conversation. I just get, I get so confused trying to match up free speech with the conversation over social media. I mean, if 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 you're blocked from Twitter in a way, it's like you have the freedom to go, I mean, make your voice heard somewhere else. It, it just feels like it distracts from like the central problem of like what social media is doing to our society and to make it a debate over free speech just feels like a distraction. But I just word vomited for a while. So Sarah, what do you think? Let's be clear. Uh, none of these platforms are uh, following the First Amendment 
what the First Amendment under our current Supreme Court doctrine would hold as protections of free speech. Um, And the platforms that have tried to do sort of free-for-all speech have failed. They've turned into sewers. So all of these platforms want to contain and have rules of engagement regardless. It's why I'm sort of with you. I find the Twitter conversation around what the rules of engagement on Twitter are going to be like really uninteresting in a lot of ways. Um, I think it's pretty clear that in previous iterations of Twitter, conservative speech was disfavored under the rules, the neutral, uh, neutrally applicable rules that they had. Now it's pretty clear that liberal speech will probably be a little more disfavored. Eh, shrug. What I think is larger is what we learn from that about speech culture in the United States and what works and what doesn't, because this isn't a new conversation. You go back to the 90s and the universities were implementing various speech codes, and it was sort of this nascent effort to be able to foster civil discourse on campus. Let's just stipulate that the motivations were good. So they would have speech codes that were like, you can't use offensive speech. Well, that quickly turned into a problem because who's getting to define offensive? And is it the the listener who gets to define whether something's offensive or what the speaker intended? Is it a neutral third party? Is it a reasonable person? And so what you ended up finding over time is that the schools that have succeeded most, I think, in fostering that civil discourse and dialogue actually have ended up right where the Supreme Court is on speech. Um, and, and that is you don't... You don't reward heckler's veto. You, it's not the listener who gets to determine. You don't ban offensive speech uh, because that just causes people not to talk about controversial subjects. That hurts our overall discourse and dialogue. It means we don't solve any of the problems in front of our country. And so it'd be so fascinating to see one of these social media companies now learn from those schools that tried to do this, obviously, on a much, much smaller scale and where they ended up and actually have a social media platform not be bound by the First Amendment. They're not. As you said, these are private companies. Right. But to voluntarily follow our First Amendment guiding principles under precedent, I actually think it'd be wildly successful. But case study, I mean, this is the one I keep coming back to. Like, if you have a company the size of Twitter where people can say anything they want, and let's say you you believe that people should say anything they want— what if it's not just offensive? What if it's dangerous? Like, oh, I don't know, in the middle of a pandemic, someone, you know, in power saying that vaccines can harm you in this specific way, and it's just absolutely scientifically not true. Is the onus on a company like Twitter to not allow dangerous information to be out there, even if it's quote unquote protected by free speech? Yeah, I mean, I guess my theory would be that know that that ends up being more dangerous in practice by banning that type of speech than if you allowed it. Because what you end up happening is that the social media platforms take down any speech about where COVID originated under that same theory, by the way. And that turned out to be a pretty bad thing for the country and incorrect. So if you take down speech that you deem to be misinformation, it's all then goes to who gets to make that decision. It turns out not to be a very good process. But if it's scientifically not true, like if it's not even misinformation. But David, people back in January of, uh, you know, last year said it was scientifically proven that the virus um, uh, could not have been, you know, human created in a lab. By the way, I'm not saying that it was human created in a lab. I want to be very clear. All I'm saying is plenty of scientists at the time were like, well, wait, that's not exactly true. Science 
isn't perfect in that way. That's why we have a First Amendment protected speech in the country. And yes, it will mean some quote unquote bad speech gets through. But the overall experiment that we've run in this country is that the the greater good is served by more speech, including speech that you don't like. Mo, last word. I, I think the question of right versus responsibility is is the key one here. Um, because uh, as we've all said, he can come up with whatever rules he wants. It's a privately owned company. We can say whatever the hell we want, but should we? And is there a responsibility that some of these companies have to the kind of information that they allow? Uh, my problem with Musk is, one, you know, he's become an active uh, uh, sharer of bad information, of misinformation, of disinformation, going so far as to push out some of the the f- completely false information about the attack on Speaker Pelosi's husband, uh, not long after taking over the company, signaling that there was going to be far fewer guardrails on the type of bad information that was shared. But where I think social media is playing a unique role in this debate in our nation's history is that it is happening, one, at scale, uh, at, at Two, at a speed that we've never dealt with before. And three, with algorithms that are further sorting us uh, and dividing us from one another. And so this bad information that historically has been able to be vetted through our media, through academia, through the number of guardrails that we as a society have put up, uh, don't have time to go through that vetting. And they're moving much faster, and they're being shared by like-minded people to each of us, creating these silos and these cocoons and these bubbles that's allowing the bad information to then take hold. And we see some of the devastating consequences of that. Bad information about vaccines that are siloed and, and, and convincing large swaths of Americans that they should not get vaccinated. Uh, January 6th was a... Uh, result of of this dynamic. This predates, this problem predates Elon Musk's uh, ownership of Twitter. But if we are seeing him take down more of these guardrails, if we see him allowing the company to to play fast and loose, then the problem is only going to accelerate and get worse. And we as a society have to decide where we draw the line. People can just choose to move off of Twitter and say, we're not going to do that. But as we've discussed on previous shows, people can also choose not to tune in to cable news. Yeah, People can choose not to tune in and get their information from different places. There's a part of it that is on us as individuals, as consumers, but do, do the companies themselves have some responsibility? I would argue that they do. All right, well, we will leave it there. Okay, so speaking of saying whatever the hell we want, uh, that's what we do every week here when we turn to our famous left, right, and center rants and raves. So Sarah Isger, you can say whatever you want. I have a rave this week. Good, I I love it. I am just so incredibly um, grateful for and thinking of all of the truck drivers and last mile drivers out there who have made this Christmas, I'll just speak for myself, personally incredible. 
the small amount of Christmas shopping I have had to leave my house to do um, it is like outrageous when I think about just 10 years ago or my own childhood. Um, it's it's wonderful. Thank you all for everything that you do for all of us. And certainly we learned during COVID um, how important you are. But this year when it's all working again, it's a great time to remember again and to say thanks. Love that. Mo? Uh, I am also going to rave a little bit. Um, this didn't get a lot of attention, but the Department of Justice reported that uh, over the last decade, the rates of violent victimization in the United States, crimes like robbery, sexual aggravated, simple assault, has actually gone down. Uh, and this stands in contrast to a lot of the, the hype and hyperbole that we see uh, in the media when it comes to covering crime. I'm not saying crime isn't a problem, but these rates of violent victimization over the last decade went down from 26 to 16 incidents per 1,000 people. Uh, we've seen this not just in the United States, but we've seen crime going down in a number of Western countries in the UK, seeing overall crime is now at its lowest level since the 1980s. And I just think it is important to recognize that while we always can do better, it is important to recognize when things are moving in the right direction. And at least on that measure, things are moving in the right direction. All right. I'm going to rave too. We're all raving. Um, you know, <laughs> when I'm when I'm on social media and someone is trolling, I generally ignore it unless, unless I view it as an opportunity to make a point. Um, if I can use the troll as an opportunity to make an important point. That is like exactly what Carly Lloyd did. Uh, she, if you don't know, is one of the greatest soccer players in U.S. history, um, won World Cups, the Olympics for the U.S. women's soccer team. Someone tweeted at her, women soccer is a joke, saw few matches, and it was boring. And she immediately retweeted that and said, it is so boring competing on the world stage for club and country, winning Olympics, World Cups, and much more when only select few get to even sniff at being there. You should tune into next year's Women's World Cup. It'll be the best yet. So everyone should tune in. And that is all the time we have for today. I really appreciate you both, Sarah Isger and Moa Lathy. Left, Right, and Center is produced by Sarah Singer Schiff. Our production assistant is Alexandra Applegate, and our executive producer is Arnie Seipel. The show is recorded and mixed by Matt Schwartz. Todd M. Simon composed our theme music. Left, Right, and Center is a co-production of KCRW and Fearless Media. I'm David Green. If you are celebrating something this holiday season, I hope you are having a wonderful time. Thank you so much for joining us. Tune in next week for more Left, Right, and Center. Download and subscribe at kcrw.com slash LRC, the KCRW app, or wherever you find podcasts. Left, Right, and Center is produced and distributed by KCRW. 